This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Throw my ticket in the wind. Throw my mattress out there, too. Draw my letters in the sand, because you got to understand that tonight I'll be staying here with you. This is Pod Dylan, so that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us once again after too long an absence is fellow Bobcat and my pal, Omar Uden. Hi, Omar. Hey, Rob. Great to be back. Great to be talking with you. Uh, I'm really excited to discuss this one. Absolutely. I look back and I saw that it has been more than two years since you've been on the show. You were on the uh, Rolling Thunder Review kind of omnibus show that we did with a bunch of guests. And uh, that's shameful because I like talking to you and I can't believe we let it two years go by. At least you're on pod- we've done other podcasts together, but this is it's been two years since you're on Pod Dylan. So I'm yeah, glad you're I mean, uh, listen, listen, unforgivable. Uh, <laughs> and we, we've got to rectify it. I, I'm glad that we're slowly but surely getting back into the routine. Um, but yeah, there's, there's much to discuss uh, about this one and others. So I'm always game to chat with you. Absolutely. So, okay, well, I'm fascinated at what your choice was because I, I reached out to you and I said, I want to have you back on the show. We want to, what do you want to talk about? And you asked about not only tonight I'll be staying here with you, which A, we've covered on the show before. B is one of my, as I said, as I've said many times, is in my top five favorite Bob Dylan songs of all time. But you wanted to specifically talk about the Rolling Thunder live version, which my guest on our previous episode, way back in episode 165, Jason MD and I did discuss, but we, we talked about a lot of other things and all the other versions. And so we didn't get into it kind of in, in depth the way we will here, but I'm sort of fascinated as why this particular version, because you said this has really been rattling around in your head lately. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I think Rob, the longer time goes on, the more I really focus in, focus in on the whole Rolling Thunder review period. And I think the Scorsese movie might have jumpstart my mind, jumpstarted my mind about this. But I think the whole I zero in on the whole Rolling Thunder review period as the the period of time where anything goes. Um, and that that also goes for. And I'm not a big. I'm not. I don't. I don't really. I didn't really follow a lot of the live career of the of the late 60s and early 70s of dylan other than what's on the bootleg series um but i in my so in my mind the the rolling thunder era is sort of the pivot point where you 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 start to see traces of the whole hey i'm gonna radically rearrange this stuff um i'm gonna throw the playbook out the window (laughs) um i'm going to you know like make some of these versions entirely unrecognizable um, you know, my mind often goes to the, the uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall version on uh, the Volume <laughs> yeah. 5 bootleg series. <laughs> it's a crazy is, version. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely insane, man. Like, and, and but but what I love about this one is it's it's such a mission statement for the Rolling Thunder review period. And like, and the contrast to its sort of almost sleepy presence on Nashville Skyline I think is is super super interesting, but I more than anything I think of it as like a thesis for like his his approach to live music in the last like forty five years. 
which is like, all right, this is the arrangement as it was. Here are the lyrics. Uh, sort of done with this. Let's try <laughs> something else. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit. Uh, I think it was my guest, Henry Bernstein, when we did the episode on Shelter from the Storm, where he pointed out that, you know, there was no, nobody ever got to hear a live version of Shelter from the Storm or any of the, the uh, Blood on the Track songs in their album form live because the next tour that he did was rolling thunder and of course mm-hmm. the sound was entirely different and and then later on he's doing the, the you know the, the hard rain live album where it's doing this rocked out super powerful version of shelter from the storm which is just you know diametrically different than the one on the album and i think about that about this song is that you mentioned you say the word sleepy and i i love that because it is it, it ends the album on such a beautiful wonderful you know sedate kind of of note and that's not this that's no. not anything no. on 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 anything on the rolling of the review where he's just <laughs> yeah it, it's true you know it, it's funny like symbolically in my mind when i imagine him sort of tossing off tonight i'll be staying here with you as sort of the the signature kiss off of nashville skyline i imagine him just kind of impishly smiling a little bit and like doffing his hat and then like disappear gently disappearing you know like down the road and then here it just seems like he's like playfully flipping us off (laughs) um and and i i just think that contrast is real neat you know like the the sneering the sneering quality of this song you know the, the the intensity of this version um compared to the almost gentle whimsical quality of nashville skyline it's just too impossible a contrast to resist. <laughs> there is on the, uh, the the Rolling Thunder bootleg series that came out a couple of years ago, like the full thing, that big d- deluxe set. Yeah. And it's got, it has one live version from, from the concerts, but it also has a rehearsal. And you can hear somebody yell it out. Somebody asks him, like he even says something like tambourine man. And what was the other one? And you hear somebody kind of mutter something and he goes, oh yeah, I know, I know that. So he starts playing and it's so beautiful. It re- and it really is. It's really yeah. and but what I think is so interesting is that it sounds like somebody just suggested it, but yet he's got all these new words already yeah. sort of mapped out. And so I'm thinking, well did he did he rewrite it at some point and then he decided, "Oh, now somebody's asking for it, I'll play these new words?" Or was it rehearsed before and this is just the version we're hearing but i just find it so interesting that it sounds so off the cuff and yet here he is singing altogether different lines for this song yeah i mean i I, logic would dictate that he had rewritten it at some point in the past but like such is the nature of his brain (laughs) that like you can never really count on that because there is still the theoretical possibility that it's just he's it's still cooking around at that point and he's just like noodling and that's the that that's the product of him just like brainstorming and like that to me just kind of captures his essence um i I don't know rob there's something about the entire rolling thunder period i i think if memory serves the first time i was on with you um back in the stone age the very first um (laughs) dylan song we analyzed was isis um and and we we definitely you know we, we definitely hewed to the, the album version on Desire. But I remember we went off on a big tangent talking about the Rolling Thunder review version because it was so visceral yeah, and guttural. And that's how I feel about so many of the tracks um, that pop up on Rolling Thunder. And I think 
this is the version that best epitomizes the sort of like ramshackle, almost dangerous spirit of those shows and how they completely began the process of the live experience subverting our expectations of the records. Now, again, I will defer to your wisdom and uh, extreme age in terms of like, I, I, I don't, I'm not as familiar with like the live, like for quality and quantity of the live performances from the, the classic sixties period and early seventies, other than like the old bootleg series and like, you know what I'll see on video footages and like, like video footage and don't look back and stuff like that. But those performances yeah, there's, you know, there, there's definitely some some extra added intensity, but there's still like a one to one correlation for in my mind between, you know, the, the essence of the songwriting and the arrangements and everything. And I just feel like this is the one where it's like, ah, screw that stuff. Anything goes here. Um, and, and, and I think it, it manifests so perfectly in like the subversion of of this song of, of tonight I'll be staying here with you. I mean, even from the choice of having it to be the last whimsical track on Nashville skyline to the opener, mm-hmm. to the visceral mission statement opener, like throwing down the gauntlet on um, the bootleg series, uh, volume five. I, I just think that had to have been a deliberate choice. <laughs> I mean, we all are familiar with Bob rewriting songs. He does it all the time. He's still doing it. He's still, even to this day, he's performing right now. He's changing lines here and there, even from songs from Rough and Rowdy Ways, kind of in small ways, but he's still doing yeah. it. But we all, and although, uh, you know, another example from, from, uh, Nashville Skyline, the version of To Be Alone with You, he's singing in concert now, has, I think, one line from the actual song. I think mm-hmm. he actually, other than the refrain, To Be Alone with You, the rest of it is a completely rewritten song. But I think what's rarer is he re and like he's doing here, he's rewriting a song to completely change its meaning. Yeah. Completely change its meaning. Because look, yep. as, as much as we talk about, there is no one correct meaning of a song because it's, it's interpretive art and it's, it means what you think it to mean. Clearly the Nashville skyline version is on some level a romantic song. And I, I mentioned this in the episode that we did on it before where it doesn't have to be, it could be about a thing. It could be just something that the singer really loves and is willing to put his life on hold yeah. to stay with. Yep. So, but that's clearly what it is. Now, this is again a rarity in the Dylan songbook, a kind of purposeful rave up of yep. I'm talking to my audience right now about the moment we're having together yeah. and I'm using mm-hmm. this song to do it. You yep. know, he mentions Rolling Thunder oh, in the yeah. song. I mean, it is such mm-hmm. a like, hey, hey, everybody, I'm being kind of cute. And that's not something Bob typically does. No, there's like an essential, I guess, an essential sweetness to the Nashville Skyline version. Mm-hmm. Like, and and say what you will about like the version that shows up on Rolling Thunder. And I can say plenty, but I don't think I don't think it's fundamentally sweet. I mean, it's still good natured, but like I don't think it's fundamentally sweet. I, I, I still think it's it's impish and playful, um, but there is a a sneering intensity to it. Not in a bad way necessarily, but just in a like. Do you know how like what? It's almost like when when the Rolling Stones sing and like I, I just feel like there's this like there's this camp quality to what Jagger does sometimes. Like here, there's this there's this intense playfulness um, and this, this like this kinetic energy that he's, you know, that he's, that he's discharging 
Whereas there is a sort of gentle reserve um, with the Nashville skyline, like an etiquette and protocol almost. Oh, that sure. He tosses, yeah. That he tosses out the window here. <laughs> he keeps using that phrase. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, entirely. Uh, I mean, he said the, the second verse of the rewritten version. And by the way, there's multiple alternate lyrics to this oh, yeah. song. But he says, I could have left this town by noon. By tonight, yep. I'd been someplace. I'd been to someplace new. But yep. I was feeling a little bit scattered. And your love was all that mattered. So yep. tonight, I'll be staying here with you. And then he goes, get ready, which is yep. so funny. The way he does, like, you know, Bob Dylan being kind of like Newt Rockney, All-American. Like, he's revving up the crowd. Like, okay, everybody. And it's just about like saying, hey, we're here together tonight. This is all that matters. And uh, you're you're going to be you and I are going to be in this relationship for the next 90 minutes, two hours, whatever. It's just very unlike anything Bob typically does. And there's just something so amazing about the transformative nature of his art that he can take a song that already exists in his back catalog and transform it as opposed to saying, well, I want to, I want to, I want to say something to the crowd about that. We're here. So I'm going to write a new song. No, no, no. I have something I could just rewrite, which is amazing that the song's, are are that malleable i mean i shouldn't be surprised but i i am still sometimes but it's still like it it, it, there's still a quality to it you're you're right you know what you're saying about the transformation is spot on but it it, it's whereas it was romantic before it's still there's still a sexual charge to it in the way i'm i'm listening to it now like even though it's you know he's framing in terms of like I'm the traveling, I, you know, I'm a, an artist on tour. I'm a, I'm a singer on tour. And this is about my relationship with you, the audience. You know, maybe my mind's in the gutter, but I still think there's something, <laughs> there's just like a sexual charge to like, to the way he's singing it, you know? And Oh, it's very know, lusty. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The inflection of his voice and, you know, the, I don't know. There's, there's nothing modest about this. Like that was about love and this is about something more primal. Oh, totally. I mean, he said when he did the rewrites for Lay Lady Lay, that song mm-hmm. goes from a romantic, you know, it's, it's certainly sexual, but it's, it's romantic. But then yeah. the, the Rolling Thunder version is just straight up. You yeah. Know, let's go upstairs. Who really cares? I mean, that, yeah. I mean, that's partly from the mood he was in at the time is what we, what we know about him. It's where he was. But yeah, yeah they're, they're just in, in virtually, as you mentioned, like the, the ISIS version or even just the way he is singing. Just this very braying, loud kind of mm-hmm. not a lot of nuance on purpose yep. Yep. kind of thing. And it is. It, and it's we don't maybe I shouldn't say we maybe some people do. I don't. And maybe that's just because of my uh, of my my heterosexuality. I don't think of Bob like that. I don't think of Bob as a as a sexual being. That's not that sure. is not a, that is not part of our relationship that I have sure. with, with this artist. And so, but I, yeah, he is being very like just the way, again, the way he's stretching out and he's playing with the words and any of the versions of said ISIS or whatever, he's just like doing that. Like keep doing it. It's it's just so unlike anything he really would ever do again in just this brief period of time. And especially when he said this song is so sweet and so kind of mild manner. And you're right. He's definitely for Nashville skyline. He's definitely conforming to the, structures of country music yep. which is just very kind of you know very very structured i use that word again but it's like just very here's the here's the here's the here's the tune it's what we're yep. playing da, 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 done as opposed to this kind of right? wild like, here's crazy the tune, thing. here's the tune 
done, but it's genteel. And again, like I'm doffing my cap off to you, ma'am. And then I'm walking away. And here it's just like you, we are on a journey together, audience, you and I, and I'm, and, and like, you know, there's also like, there's this swagger and arrogance, which I kind of like where he's just like, well, the way he thinks I could have left this town by noon by tonight. I'd been to someplace new. It is almost like a sneer. Like, do you know what I mean? Like there, it is almost like, I don't know. There is something very, there's a harsh edge to it, but not in a way that's alienating. And I think it's just because he's so talented um, and he uses charisma, but like there is a hard edge to this version that colors outside the, the lines of etiquette that, that, uh, that he created those lines that, drew, that were drawn up so rigidly um, when he did Nashville Skyline. No doffing of the hat here. Maybe at, at worst, you know, at best, a, a wink of the eye. But I think also there's like he's sticking his tongue out at us. Uh, in a, again, in a playful way. Why do you think this this has sort of been rattling around in your head lately? Because it's not like this just came out. You've had a chance to live with this for a while. What is it about no, this one that's seemingly popping up out of nowhere? I think that as I'm taking stock of his recording career, and I think, you know, it's just him, you know, now being over 80 you know, like just, just, and, and, you know, knock, I'm knocking on wood right now, Rob, I'm literally knocking on my hardwood floor. So I'm not saying anything, but like, you know, you're just hoping that, that as he, you know, he remains in good health for years to come, but he's also at the age where you are taking stock of a career and, to, and, you know, so things like the pandemic certainly allowed me to take stock of, you know, things I cared about and artists I love and spend some time with them. And with Dylan, I think the entire Rolling Thunder experience and this is a bold claim. And so, you know, I was going to say, don't hold me to it. But you know what? Hold me to it. That's fine. Um, in, in, a, in a 60 year, 60 plus year recording and touring career, Rob, I'm really starting to think of the, that whole, and again, maybe recency bias because of the Scorsese movie. I'm starting to think in the 60 plus to, uh, recording and touring career of the Rolling Thunder review period as the ultimate inflection point for him artistically, creatively. Something happened, like something snapped in a good way that, that where that, that there, there was a, 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 his playfulness and recklessness and creativity and like boundless, relentless energy in his mid to late thirties. I just think it, 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 it provided some grist for the mill that allowed him to enter middle age and senior statehood inspired. Um, as opposed to just like being a jukebox who shuffles on and off stage. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, maybe I'm not doing a, a good job of articulating it, but like there is a spirit behind that entire tour and that entire period where he is just, I mean, I'm thinking of it as, as subversive a period for him creatively as when he like went electric the first time. Hmm. Interesting. Now he did say, I think it was after the fact but he did say in referring to the tour he did with the band before this, the 74 mm-hmm. tour where they played the arenas, mm-hmm. that it was the hardest thing he ever did. Mm-hmm. And and again, maybe he wasn't feeling it at the time, but he, he later on gave interviews and nothing to do with the band, but just later on said that he felt like he was put he'd put himself in a situation that he immediately knew was not right for him. And he was going to have to push himself through it. And, you know, that whole tour, we all know from those live albums and those bootlegs that he's, he's yelling through that tour as well in a very oh, different yeah. way. But I mean, that, that's a very different approach. And so it's interesting that he then, once he gets out of that and he sort of reestablishes himself as a 
touring artist who can draw millions of people to a concert hall after, you know, eight, six, seven years away from, from being a touring artist, he can come back and say, no, 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 I, I, you know, I'm, I'm still Bob Dylan and I can still command this level of attention. He ditches that and decides to do this, which is almost artistically the antithesis of that approach that, and, and then, you know, flash forward 40 years, there's a documentary about this time where he is dismissing it saying, Oh, it it, it had no lasting meaning. It it didn't mean anything. And it's all good. It's all just ashes now, but Bob, you are still sitting here talking about it for a documentary. I think you're kind of trying to BS us a little bit. Yeah. I mean, like, listen, I, I rarely has there been an artist whose work and uh, creativity I revere so much, whose statements and utterances about said work that I take less seriously. And it's not because, <laughs> but, and it's not because I think that he's dumb or frivolous. I just think that like the joke is always on us with him. <laughs> um, and then that's fine. I'm comfortable with that relationship, but you know, you bring up that 74 tour um, with the band. And, you know, I remember reading, you know, to, to your point about this song in particular, focus, choosing to focus in on the relationship between singer and audience and using that as a framing device narratively. I remember reading something, you know, relatively recently about um, how, and I'm not as familiar with that particular tour, but like, didn't he, didn't he like, you know, th- that song, uh, most likely you go your way and I'll go mine from the blonde on blonde records. Like I-, I felt like that was always like one of the openers of those shows. Uh, it was. Uh, yeah. It was on the tour. Yeah. And I feel like that's another song that serves as like a dialogue uh, uh, dealing with the relationship between like the singer and the crowd, you know? And I feel like maybe something from that resonated with him. You mean that song or that tour? Something from that tour and using that song as a framing device resonated with him to try and push that thematically, um, you know, in rearranging a song like like uh, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You. I just mm. feel like that imprint that, you know, got imp- that that theme got imprint- imprinted on his brain about this <laughs> about this dynamic between performer and audience. It would, you know, Bob has almost knee jerk. So, uh, in a knee-jerk style, refused to ever give an audience what they want. I mean, I, you know, sometimes almost I think in, in a in a self-punishing way, he can just be so contradictory because he's so afraid of kind of being cutesy, you know. And 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 a lot of artists are not afraid of that. You know, I mean, like Paul McCartney is perfectly happy to do lots of Beatles songs at yeah. his concerts, and I'm not comparing the two and saying one one approach is different than the other different or better than the other, but that's just, Bob is just kind of unwilling to do that. So again, I think sometimes to his own detriment, I think he's just kind of unwilling to kind of, you know, be like, it's, it's okay. It's all right. If you want to entertain the crowd, they are here to be entertained. Yes. They're, this is sophisticated work. Uh, and it has a lot of merit to it on an artistic level, but, but people are here to have fun too. And sometimes it's okay, Bob, for you to be the, the deliverer of that fun. You know, and I think he kind of goes against that. But it's in here when I was listening to the versions again in prep for this, it was fun to hear him be that way to kind of be, you know, as I mentioned, like the get ready and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, when he's doing the 74 tour, right? And he's singing It's All Right, Ma, 
I'm Only Bleeding, featuring the Nixon line, which, mm-hmm. it, you know, once again, Bob writes a line that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense or, or have any real current, have any currency in the moment. And then years later, you're like, oh, my God, this is like this oracle that wrote this. Prophetic, now it's yeah. the most perfect line ever. But he knew that when he's singing that line, it was going to get a reaction from the crowd. Like he knew yeah. it because it was right in the middle of Watergate. And it was, and he was, he didn't have to sing that song, but he chose to. And he knew that that line was coming. And so here he is doing it again, where it's like, okay, I'm now going to deliver this thing. I'm going to sing, get ready. And I'm going to, I'm going to sing you a song. I'm rewriting this song, which you all are going to know. This is my, I'm talking to you directly. And it's, it's even someone as contrary as Bob. It's got to be a hard thing to resist to want to get that kind of press that nerve a little and get that reaction from a crowd. Cause how would you not want that? It's got to be an amazing thing to be standing on a stage in front of 10,000, 20,000 people and utter a line and have them, have them roar. That's just got to be, that's the, the, yeah, the there's awesome a, spectacle of that has got to be really be. hard to resist. And it, it must be. And maybe, you know, like he experienced such an overload on, you know, in that experience that like, he trained himself to be a little bit more like aesthetic, like aesthetic and disciplined and monkish in like what he doled <laughs> out to the audience. Um, it's funny that you mentioned it in terms of just like almost, you know, denying himself the, the, the pleasure or satisfaction, you, you know, in my shallow moments as an audience member at multiple shows, I'm always like, ah, he's taking it out on us. This is his, like his, his playful F you to like all of us. <laughs> um, but you know, you're, you're probably right. Like your theory is probably, you know, essentially more correct, but there was something unlocked here where he's like, you know, on a very primal level, aware of the, the connection with and influence over the audience that he has. Um, and it's, it's, it feels like sacred. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like this, this enormous secret between him and everyone who bought a ticket. Um, and, and so in a way, it's even more personal than the sort of genteel crooning of the, you know, the Nashville skyline performance, even though it's bigger and louder and dirtier, you know <laughs> what I mean? Um, and, and by the way, listen, you know, we haven't touched on, you know, the, the, the sort of normal, you know, the regular differences in terms of like the audio, just because you have, you know, you have the violin and you have the, you know, the, 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 the harmonies, the backup singers and everything. And it's just louder. It is louder, you know, and, and like never as, as unsophisticated as it sounds, you know, in me saying it, but like just never underestimate the, the tonal difference and the, the difference in, you know, thematic output and impact from a song being louder, like cranking it up to 10 compared <laughs> to the album version. You know what I right. mean? Again, oh, something primal, something guttural. It's interesting that one of the lines, one of the first versions of which featured a line that he later took out, which it opened with the, uh, he says, um, he talks about take my head out of the sand because yeah. you've got to understand, which again, seems like a definitely self-referential thing of saying, Hey, I've been kind of away for a while. Yep. Well, by this point, he'd already put out blood on the track. So you could hardly claim that as somebody or and planet waves uh, and, and knock it on heaven's door. You could hardly claim that somebody that's not, uh, not, not, you know, in, in concert with his art at the moment. But still, it's funny that he took that line out and then changed it. And then when you get again, the, the version from 
the live version where he says, I left my dreams on the riverbed. I can hear the lonesome whistle blowing. I hear them Mm -hmm. semis rolling too. I mean, there you go. You could just totally picture Bob sitting there in his hotel room with the sketchbook watching these guys load the trucks and, you know, carry it out. And if there's a driver on the road, let him have my load because today I'll be staying here with you. I mean, not to be, you know, yeah, sexual. Yeah, there's a bit of a double entendre there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I, I... There is, and again, I, I when I think about incorporating, you know, the rolling thunder, the words rolling thunder in the lyrics, <laughs> like, it feels so generous. And yet, it's, it's such a comment on how rarely he would do that. I mean, how many times have, like, you, you know, when you're dealing with, like, again, like, bands like the Rolling Stones or, like, U2 or Kiss, where, like, you know, like, premier live bands where, like, every show they'll, like, playfully switch around a few lyrics to incorporate like where they are, the venue that they're at, the city (laughs) that they're at. And like all of this just feels so grubby and beneath Dylan. (laughs) And and so when it does happen, it's just like, Oh man, this, there was something going on here. There's just something going on in this period. It just felt like a wild animal had been let out of his cage. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And, 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 And Rob, I think history proves me right because almost immediately after a year or two after he almost has to atone for it by becoming a born again Christian. <laughs> and there was something, uh, you know, again, for, for a, an artist of his stature and how much money there was on the line and a lot of different ways and reputations on the line. Yeah. He, th- that is part of the appeal of the rolling thunder version is that they do feel like they're going to fly apart at any moment. They really feel like this whole thing is just going to collapse. Somebody's going to drop something Somebody's going to hit. Somebody's string is going to break. It, yeah. This is just, there's no way this is going to sustain itself yep. for 95 minutes without a major disaster. And it really yep. did. And that it's that, it's that tension that gives it that just kind of crazy energy. And you can imagine mm-hmm. people have said, um, I read a bunch of interviews like in, in Ray Paget's book where they said uh, the people that were on the tour, the second Rolling Thunder tour was just not as much fun because Bob was in a different mood. And yeah. the record company had kind of gotten their hands a little more directly involved, but it was so they said, but everyone said that first one was as close to the wild sort of gypsy caravan idea that he wanted to put across that it, it got as close as somebody could of his name because there was so much pressure to make more money out of it and play bigger halls and do all the hits yeah. and things like that. I mean, like it just seems like I'm not surprised to hear that because that kind of kinetic energy is just like unsustainable. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, it makes, it makes perfect sense um, that, you know, you know, a little bit of that just went a long way. And, and, and again, it, the whole thing just had this incredible extemporaneous feel, you know what I mean? Where like, and again, anything goes, um, it, it's just this, this propulsive, like this propulsive physical force, that that you're just not going to be able to duplicate over the long run. Um, so it's it's it it really felt like a sprint. It really felt like they were playing for their lives. <laughs> it really felt like there was this ramshackle quality because it's like guys, anytime this could go, at any time this could go. You know, this the the the, the stage could collapse. You know, <laughs> like like we got to get this out now. We got to get this out now. So it was ramshackle, but it was also there was just an urgency. You know what I mean? And I, I don't know. I, I don't know how else to describe it, except I'm not surprised at all that that kind of intensity 
is is very limited in scope. Yeah, and very hard to recapture. Very hard because it's one. It's it's the reason why you know for movies most sequels are not as good because all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're this thing is trying to capture yeah the tone or the the feeling of the first thing when the first thing wasn't worried about that it was just creating itself on the fly and it was what it was but all of a sudden the second one is like well now we have to do this thing in the style of the thing you like and as we know that is as anathema to bob is that whole that whole idea and so yeah i mean you know for all the versions we're talking about here it was only done live about 10 times during these during this tour and then that was it it was retired Not, and, for and, many and, years correct me if i'm wrong i thought i read like a few weeks ago it was not it was then buried until like the 90s at least yes yeah he didn't okay. do it again he did it he did it a bunch of times in 75 twice in 1976 and then not again until 1990 yeah. and then he went on and would do it every so often i mentioned this again on the the other episode we did he did it at the MTV unplugged shows uh it didn't make the the album i was gonna say that was an outtake right yeah it's an outtake which i absolutely love i love that okay. he does it and it, it's i'm like i really wish that had been like a double album or something because there's a, there's a lot of great material on that bootleg and unplugged concert and then you know he did it sporadically throughout the 90s and into the 2000s and just would do it you know here and there occasionally and then he stopped last time was 2006 and he's not done it since it's it's it stayed you know uh it's it stayed in the vaults all this time since and it's you know um it, he'll never match in my mind not match that's not the right term he'll the the one on Nashville skyline is precious to me and i have that one he doesn't need to try and do it but it's i love it so much that i would kill for him to pull it out again because it's just i just find it so unbelievably charming yeah you're right but it's just like because i I look at the whole nashville skyline record is like very more than most albums and by the way it's one of my favorite records he did but like it's for me it's the most of a time dylan album um and and again i have no doubt that he could retake any one of those songs and like you know make it somewhat compelling but like more than most records of his the stuff on Nashville Skyline feels very much of a time and like very, it would just feel intuitively, it just feels a little anachronistic. Mm-hmm. The notion of him playing, at least in the style that it was in Nashville Skyline. Oh, that yeah. would feel, that would feel very tame and subdued. And yet I would be very freaked out to see 82 year old Bob try to do it in the style of Rolling Thunder review <laughs> <laughs> you know, right now. I think right now some things are just better left, you know, in my memory and imagination. But like, man, what a what a version, what a version. And that's not to take anything away from from the version uh, that closes out Nashville Skyline. But like I said, like it feels perfect that that track is a closer of Nashville Skyline, but it's an opener to opening track of the bootleg <laughs> here because I really think it sets a tone. It does. It really does. Uh, it was said it was it was fun listening to these over again. I was out walking my dog listening to each version kind of in succession. And it was just fun to hear him just be so kind of, you can't, the Bob we know now who is so subdued kind of like, he's just at that keyboard and he, you know, good Lord, he bends in one direction and the crowd goes nuts. Oh my God, he's moved his head, you know? And here he is 
making funny sounds, funny shapes with his arms and he's got yep. the face pain and he's screaming into the mic. It's, it really is like, wow, that really is. That feels like a completely different guy than the guy it, that we're, that we're dealing with now. Yeah, it does. And I, it's a gift that it exists. And like, it, I'm grateful that we have it and that it sort of exists in the ether. Um, and, and you know, I can, I can revisit it. And, you know, I, I, I confess, I, I guess I never talked to you about the Rolling Thunder documentary. I'm assuming that you, enjoyed the hell out of it as i oh did. yeah it's a lot of fun i mean it's a great giant put on so it's it's yeah. a lot of fun yeah no absolutely and i just think it captures the the sort of ramshackle spirit um of what they were trying to pull off and it certainly can te- even in its in its fictional way it sort of contextualized that period um if i had had nothing but the bootleg series i would have still enjoyed it but getting sort of the background and the context behind the whole time even if done through his playful lens uh, of half truths was it, it, like incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, and and but it's just like the, that song, the recording, like the the studio version of that song, certainly a sentimental favorite and kind of subversive in its own way. Um, in, in terms of its embrace of like the country genre, but like oh boy, like this one is just uh, something entirely different. It just packs a punch. <laughs> it sure does it sure does and it's you know the the rolling thunder review that documentary uh i mean i've said this other times but like i want documentaries of all his periods just because i like watching sure. him just talk about stuff sure he's he's just a gifted aside from his talents as a musician he's a gifted storyteller he's he just he knows how to tell a story and keep you riveted and just hearing him talk about stuff close up with the camera in his face is just utterly compelling. He's very funny as we all know. And yeah. so I'm like, God, let's do documentaries about every damn period in his life. What the, I mean, let's, I don't want him too busy. Just record. I want him recording things. I don't want him just spending all the time in front of cameras, but just seeing those, those Azure blue eyes that he's got and that, that, you know, that grin where he's just talking about this and just to hear him say at the end of that documentary, what did it all add to? Nothing. Doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's- <laughs> it's, it's, I, and what I love about it is every time he opens his mouth or every time he writes something down um, in non-song form, whether it's in his book or like it's an interview, one of his rare interviews, it's just like, I go in Rob, like full well knowing that like there's a decent chance that at least 30% of what's coming out of his mouth is like complete BS mm-hmm. um, and very <laughs> self-conscious BS but like he is the only public figure that I will gleefully go on that journey with because it is so riveting because he never stops being a troubadour, even when he is without his guitar and piano and he's just sitting and talking mm-hmm. or he's, you know, writing a memoir in a book is right. that essential quality of being a, a hypnotic, captivating storyteller that sort of captures the essence of like, you know, of artistry in the American spirit as hokey as that sounds. There is something mystical and magical about his energy when he's unspooling tales. And, you know, (laughs) high end versions of that are when we're watching him in concert or when we're seeing, you know, we're seeing him perform high wire acts like this. But it's also when he's kind of gently taking us through, you know, recordings and like the, the context and the sociological backdrop of like the arena he was operating in. He is just always a troubadour like with or without the uh, the instruments. Absolutely. And it says something about the, the the catalog here that we can do a show like this just focusing on 
a live iteration of a song. I, I, you know, I, again, I've had other people pitch me this idea before about, you know what? I just want to talk about the live version of this. And I've always been a little unsure about that. I'm like, well, is there enough really to discuss? But when you pitched this to me, I thought, well, that it really is. Some, those versions are completely different. And I really wanted to have you back. And so I was like, I thought, let's, let's try this. And I guess it should not surprise me this far in seven years into the show and 30 years into me being a fan of his, that yes, there still is, you can still have an, an in-depth conversation about just one version of the song, not even the whole song and all of its versions, just one iteration that lasted basically again, all of like 10 performances. It's, yeah. It still has that much going on in it. Exactly. And, and, you know, listen, I'm not deluded enough to necessarily <laughs> think that you're going to be able to do this for every live version of every studio song he lays out because <laughs> the wiggle wiggle live versions. <laughs> right, right. Cause occasionally you're going to have live versions that don't, that for years have not deviated that much from the studio versions, or you're going to have versions that deviated from the, the studio versions, but for no rhyme or reason. And that like, they don't actually, they might be interesting sounding. They might hit the ear differently, but you know, you don't, you'd have to struggle to try to come up with some kind of thematic difference. Yeah. But I think this is an example. So, so you might need to take it. I'm not giving you advice on your podcast. You are obviously <laughs> the expert, but what I, what I would say is it's, I, I mean, you might just have to take it on a case by case basis Yep. As to yep. a particular song, the live version of which might deviate enough to um, cause some kind of interesting thematic contrast to warrant a discussion. But I'm telling you they're there. They mm-hmm. exist. They might not exist all the time, but they do exist. And I think this song kind of encapsulates and represents that spirit for me. And, and that's not to take anything away from the, the studio version on Nashville Skyline, which I think is lovely, which I think is beautiful, but beautiful for a very distinctly and distinct and different reason. And I think both should be discussed and both should be celebrated. Absolutely. And that is a great place to leave it. So Omar, Thank you once again for for coming back again. Two years is way too long. It will not be long that long. Unacceptable. For again, I am so. coming back. I, I pledge to the the, and I have not even talked about it with Rob yet. With Rob yet, I pledge to the listeners. I will be back. You know, before twenty four months are up, I, I insist on a twelve to eighteen months minimum or maybe maximum before I come back. It's it's intolerable uh, to do it any other way. That is fair. So uh, again, thank you so much for, for coming back. So before we exit, though, I have to give you. The exit question. Now, I think the last time you were on, I was still doing the set because the last time you were on is we were talking about the Rolling Thunder tour. Bob had just come back on tour and mm-hmm. you had seen him live. And so by that point, I had moved on from the what do you want to hear him do live question because that, that had become everybody had known at that point. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to move mm-hmm. on to one of the more recent exit questions, which I know I haven't asked you yet, which is if you were going to meet Bob and you could bring one object to get him to sign. I've been asking people what album, and I'm going to, I'm going to open it up a little bit bigger object. It could be anything in your collection or anything that you would want to go get, but you know, you're going to meet Bob and the, the, the you know, the sort of the, the, the boundary is oh, he's going to sign something for you. If you want to get him, get him to sign something, what would you have him sign? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, it would still be an album, but what the thing is, it would not be one of his albums. Ooh. Um, I would want to get him to sign a copy of uh, the Beatles rubber soul. Um, because I think that hanging out with him, it was one of the impetuses. I don't know what the plural of impetus is. Um, <laughs> impetai. One of the impetai <laughs> of them kind of expanding the, 
the quality and, um, you know, sort of uh, thematic range of their songwriting. And I think not, no album represents that better initially than Rubber Soul. Um, so I want him to sign that also because it would probably confuse him. <laughs> it really would. That would be such an inscrutable object to have, like, framed on a wall. You're like, oh, look at that. You've got Rubber Soul. What does that say? Does that, who's that? <laughs> like signed by yeah. a not beetle? <laughs> yeah, man. Like, listen, and, and, and to, and to get his face, here's the thing. I, I, I feel like turnabout is fair play because that seems like the kind of goofy crap he would pull, um, on someone. Um, and also it would be a nice thing to show off to people, uh, as you said, to, to see that, that autograph thing and then have them squint and be like, wait, what? So it'd be a double whammy in terms of confusing people. And I'm all about that. Hell of a conversation piece. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's a fantastic answer. Absolutely. So, Omar, thank you once again for coming back, man. You know, I always enjoy talking to you. So thank you for doing this. Same here, Rob. Can't wait for the next time. Take care. All right. So, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Of course, you can find the show over on Twitter and Blue Sky, just as Pod Dylan. And if you want to support the show and hear the full extended episodes every week, plus our bonus shows, Please subscribe to Pod Dylan on Apple Podcasts or on fmpods.com. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. You mentioned one, Tambourine Man, and what was the other one? Oh, uh.